This podcast was recorded in a Zoom meeting with the Hartford Street Zen Center Sangha. Please visit hszc.org for information about how to join our online programs or to make a contribution. We depend on the generosity of our members and supporters, especially during this challenging time. Thank you. I like to start a talk by getting up and walking away. I had to close my big sliding glass door. I noticed that street noise is starting to come back as we become accustomed to whatever this is. I was remembering while we were sitting when I give the talk at Hartford Street, that wonderful, the best part of it is um, uh, meeting the Jiko at the altar upstairs, presenting in, greeting each other, sharing a few smiles before we walk downstairs. It's a pretty good representative of what we've lost in this time of COVID. This talk has to be about COVID. How odd it is to not, to not have a response. I've only ever given talks to people. Wow. So yes, I work as a hospice chaplain. I have for 10 years. And this is what my work is like, only without even the little pictures. The adjustment was tremendous. Since I have nothing to offer but my presence, and we've lost a lot of presence, haven't we? When I make chaplain calls on my phone, it's as if the words are the only thing that matters, but the words aren't. What I want to talk to do about today is grief. When I ordained, when I ordained, I thought I would be wise about Buddhism. Actually, I was nervous. I went to Michael Wenger. I said, you know, I'm ordaining as a priest, but I don't know the Pali Canon. Uh, how am I going to, people are going to ask me about the middle discourses. What am I going to do? But nobody's ever asked me about the Pali Canon. People ask about Zen, what the Buddha taught. But I thought I would be wise about, I thought I'd have words, and I also thought I'd perform weddings. I would look great in my okesa and I'd marry people, but as it turns out, I perform funerals. I've performed a lot of funerals. <sighs> and when I give talks, I talk about death, and now I talk about grief.
I've lived at Zen Center for a long time. What I learned, for the most part, what I learned from the teachers when I lived at Zen Center, it wasn't in a formal event like this. I mean, yes, that was great. Excuse me, Mio, it was fabulous. <laughs> but it was the asides. It was the questions after work meeting on the steps to the Zendo, the hurried. I was, as I was thinking about this talk, <clears throat> uh, one, one of Reb's teachings that <clears throat> has stuck with me, we were, um, we were in the dining room class and the dining room classes during a practice period are kind of brutal. It's at night and the chairs are uncomfortable and it's dark and you're tired. You're always tired at Tassahara. So Reb, one of his students asked him a question and his answer was really, it was really cutting. And another of his students <clears throat> raised her hand and she dared to say to Reb, when, when you talk to someone like that, I don't feel safe. And Reb said, why would I want to make you feel safe? And that is a great teaching. <clears throat> in, a, in a life where, as the planet is really learning right now, in a life where there is no safety. Why would a Zen teacher try to pull that wool over anyone's eyes? Joan Halifax. We put not knowing because safety is knowing. That's why we <laughs> go around trying to know all the time to make ourselves feel safe. We put not knowing into practice by recognizing that really we are always in free fall. It's not like we will find some moral high ground where we are finally stable and can catch all of those falling around us. It's more like we are all falling above the infinite groundlessness of life. We are all falling above the infinite groundlessness of life. And we learn to become stable in flight and to support others to become free of the fear that arises from feeling unmoored. The final resting place is not the ground at all but rather the freedom that arises from knowing there will never be a ground. And yet here we are together, here we are together, navigating the boundless space of life, not attached, yet intimate. That's Joan Halifax. Joan Halifax and Frank Ostaseski gave teachings the last three Monday mornings from Upaya. It was called, hmm, don't remember the name of the series, but it's on the Upaya website. Really, really recommend it. Two great teachers. 
So let's say that, let's say that this thing that has happened has brought groundlessness to the fore for everyone. And we could say some of, some of my friends and I have thought, well, this is just what the Buddha taught. Change is always happening. Groundlessness always prevails. And we can say, isn't it nice that other people are learning this lesson, but it's actually not nice at all. I was supposed to give the talk at Hartford Street in March, and we went back and forth. Should we meet in person or not? And that was exactly the time I was canceling a lot of things. I, um, since I work in healthcare, I'm germ aware. I don't think I'm, I'm not phobic. I know phobias. I'm not phobic, but I'm germ aware. And also because I was watching Rachel Maddow, I had a sense of what was coming. So I was um, an early adopter on stocking up on soup and on being afraid. And I reached a point where I was too afraid to do my patient visits. And so I went out on PTO. The first thing I learned was when I was that consumed by fear, I was no longer useful. I spent some days here in my apartment paralyzed by fear. It's coming, it's coming. And this I think is when, you know, the vi we knew it was in Washington State. Oh gosh, poor Washington State. And then it was in Davis. It's getting closer. And then it was in Mountain View. And that was a frightening time. And, and praise our, our local government for slamming the lid as quickly as they did. It's really astonishing. I think um, an important element of this is how most of us have not been touched directly by coronavirus. I have a friend in Colorado who got it very badly. I have a friend in New York who got it very badly. And, but here, it's friends of friends. One of, the, one of the assisted living facilities where I've been visiting for years got it very badly, 10 deaths so far. But still, it's a, it's a concept. And I'm not complaining. That's one thing I'm not complaining about. I think I had my talk at Hartford Street scheduled just before I was to leave. I was going to go back to New York for an ordination. And then because I had a broken heart, I had a fabulous love affair last year, fabulous. And when it ended, oh my gosh, so hard. So what I, the way I've been living is if you have a broken heart, you give yourself a week in Paris. <laughs> So, so I couldn't go to Paris, I couldn't go to New York, and I understand now if that, if the ordination had been scheduled for a week earlier, if I had done that trip, I would have been in New York when the virus was being passed before people had symptoms, and I could have been stuck in a foreign country. It's like, you know, the story of the, the story we all tell, the 
the farmer's son falls off his horse and breaks his leg and everybody says, oh, bad luck. And then the army comes through and takes all the able-bodied young men and they can't take him because he has a broken leg and everybody says, good luck. So my trip to Paris is like that. But you know, that was where I think I began feeling the grief around this event. And the way that the way that we feel it is my mind kept touching back to it. I was in the the part of planning, <clears throat> packing, and a thought would come to my head, oh don't forget to take and I, oh no trip. I learned the I learned the general through the particular. All I have to study is myself. I believe that the grief I'm experiencing and the grief many of us are immersed in is the grief for the way of life that we had the privilege of living for so many years. The way of life that if you had a broken heart, you could go to Paris. Wow. Air France tried to give me a <laughs> Air France tried to give me a voucher usable within one year. I'm like, no, Air France, <laughs> give me the money because <laughs> we are not going to be traveling that way. We're not going to be living that way anymore. In our lifetime, today is my birthday. In our lifetime, we've been so comfortable. We've had it so good. And like air travel, all the time I was jetting around, I knew, I knew that the environment was paying the price for that. It was cheap. I was traveling on miles and this and that. It was cheap. It was easy. But I knew that a price was being paid somewhere. And I'd say that that bill is coming due now and we're, we're waking up to it. So grief for that way of life and acceptance of this. There's a <clears throat> Kubler-Ross's, excuse me. <clears throat> Kubler-Ross's <clears throat> grief model is well known. There's another, another approach, a man named William Warden that I really like. And Warden has, his model has four tasks, the four tasks of grief. And the first is accepting what's, understanding what's happened. And it looks as if all of you are old enough to have experienced death directly. Someone we love dies and we forget. We think they're gonna call. We think we're gonna call them and then we remember. Oh, they died. So that initial period of grief is that series of shocks. Accepting the reality of the loss. And this is certainly, certainly what we have been going through as a country. The second, the second is to process the pain, to process the pain of the grief. We've lost so much. And I must say, coronavirus is not the only difficulty 
of this time. I would mention an, an unelected takeover of our government. I would just mention that. Fears for democracy and climate collapse. Hard times, hard times after such a long good time. <clears throat> the thing about understanding the pain of these situations, when, when the coronavirus, when the enormity of the uh, challenge arose, I knew for myself that I had to be very careful not to slide into a depression. I'm a person who does anxiety and depression. So far, so good. To, to acknowledge the difficulty, but not wallow in it, right? To take the middle path, not to ignore it, certainly not to do what we call practicing a spiritual bypass, but not to let it consume me and my life. One trick around that for me that's so important is when we see the opportunity for pleasure to take it. There have been times in my life when I've been depressed and it has felt as if experiencing pleasure was being disloyal to my depression. But that's just foolish. And this is such a beautiful time of year. When I was living at Tassajara, living at Tassajara is really hard. Doing that intense kind of practice is really hard. When I was living at Tassajara, I would be walking down the path and I'd see some crazy flower. And I would just think that the beauty of nature is making this possible. I'd think if I were in a, a rundown 60s building in the middle of the city, this would be really hard. But we have nature. I miss the Pacific Ocean, but we have nature. So there's processing the pain of grief, the grief over what we've lost, which means acknowledging it, but not being consumed by it. And then Warden's third task is to adjust to a world without the deceased. In the early weeks of stay at home, I was one of the people, and I heard this expressed, um, I, Ezra Klein does a wonderful podcast. I really recommend Ezra Klein's podcast. And he's become a meditator and he started strictly political and now he's talking about the inner life. And he mentioned this too, of this feeling of, how am I supposed to spend this time? Am I supposed to be productive? Or am I supposed to be taking care of myself by taking a nap, this uncharted territory. So adjusting to the world without, we could say a world without easy distractions. I saw an old lady in my building down in the laundry room and she said, I'm so bored, but I can see into her living room occasionally. She's not so interesting that I have to stop everything and stare at her because all she does is sit in her chair and either read a book or watch television. And so for someone who lives like that, which is a way of life in my work as a hospice chaplain, I visit people all the time who spend their lives sitting in a chair watching television or reading a book. The lucky ones can still read. 
And I thought, what would be, what would constitute boring? And you know what I think it has to do is shopping. I miss shopping, right? The great distraction. I was at Tassajara after 9-11, but as I understand it, the president of the United States told the people in the United States that what they should do after 9-11 is go shopping. <laughs> I don't miss Hillsdale Mall, but I miss going to Trader Joe's twice a day, shopping, ice cream. So living in a world without those distractions and those created pleasures, I'm a, I have the great fortune to be a Dharma heir of Myogen Steve Stuckey, the late great Myogen Steve Stuckey. After Steve died, there was a period in grief that was so, I'd experienced deaths of people I loved before, but there was a period after Steve died that, what is this? It felt as if, it felt as if everything in my world felt as if there'd been a massive earthquake and everything had been thrown up in the air and everything had landed but everything was in a different position. Everything was there, but everything was changed. The only thing that wasn't there was Steve, except he was kind of still there too, and he still is because, because his teachings continue endlessly. But this to me, that expresses this to adjust to a world without the deceased. This. This is our world now. This is actually our world now. And this period of intense isolation is not going to last forever. But what a lot of us are experiencing currently is understanding it's going to last for a long time. So how do we adjust to this? Zen says, take a look at it. Zen says, don't turn away. Zen says, don't add anything extra. As I understand it, Zen is always asking me, what am I going to do about it? You know, in Kubler-Ross's um, model of stages of grief, one of the stages is anger. And didn't we just see everybody go into anger? And particularly, gosh, my Facebook friends, the anger at Trump. I mean, do we really have to repost? <laughs> we know. <laughs> we know Trump is being a problem through this. So the anger, there's a saying, I'm, praise God, a long time sober. And, you know, I learned so much in my early active days in AA. And a saying I heard in those days is I'd rather be mad than sad. Right? so angry. Zen invites me to drop the yearning for the past. Zen invites me to drop the fear for the future. And Zen asks me, what am I going to do about it? Right? What, what are you going to do about it? Not whose fault is it? <laughs> Who's, I want to speak to management. No. What am I going to do about it? 
what kind of future do we want to create? It's turned into a blank slate, hasn't it? What kind of future do we want to create? So I vote for love. I vote for a future full of love. Ani Pemachodron calls us spiritual warriors. It's one of the reasons I <laughs> love her so much. Don't you feel better when you think you're a spiritual warrior? I do. It takes courage to love. When I was, when I was involved in that wonderful love affair, I was packing, I'd packed up my little um, backpack and I was just leaving my apartment to go to his place. And again, I had a feeling, what is this feeling? And I stopped, I was walking across this living room floor and I stopped, what, what? And I understood that the feeling was vulnerability. I understood that being involved with one other human being in that way was vulnerability. And I understood the danger of that. As a chaplain, it's my job to be vulnerable. And it's great, but these are my relationships with my patients are more, <laughs> they're more controllable than a relationship with a lover. <laughs> So I stood there in my living room with my backpack in my hand and I thought about it because I felt that I still had choice. I still could turn back to safety, to so-called safety. But anybody who knows me knows, I mean, it was a wonderful moment because it was a, it was a moment for me to say, yes, I'm willing. I probably will be hurt, but I'm willing. I don't want to miss anything. The great Mary Oliver poem. When I was just starting to meditate, I had the quote from that Mary Oliver, I'm turning on my clock. I had the quote from that Mary Oliver poem enlarged over my desk. You know, I, I don't want to miss my own life. I don't want to miss my wild and wonderful life. So my position is, this is what our wild and wonderful life looks like. We're home alone. You know, more people are living alone at this time in history than ever before. We're home alone. We're afraid. Going to the grocery store is a deal, is a thing. We know people who are sick. Some of us are going to be touched directly by death. This is our wild and wonderful life. This is the summit of the mystic peak. The only way that we can bear any of this, of course, <laughs> is through lots of Zazen. Zazen, we have to learn the workings of our own minds. We have to learn who's creating the cages that imprison us, don't we? 
and there's never been a better tool than Zaza. And I like to talk about Harry Leonard Cohen, the late great Leonard Cohen, my God. Uh, he, in an interview with Terry Gross, he said, she said, why did you go to a monastery? And Leonard Cohen said, you know, there were just, there were just parts of me that Western psychology couldn't seem to touch. Yeah. We have to, we have to touch those parts. Because, because we have to be helpful. We are the spiritual warriors. The world is being rebuilt. How do we want it rebuilt? Do we want to hand it over to Mitch McConnell? No. Hand it over to Donald Trump for his personal power? No. Here's a possibility. You know, in California, one thing that's happened as a result of coronavirus is nonviolent offenders who couldn't afford to pay bail, who were stuck in jail, have been released from jail. Homeless people have been housed. So there are possibilities of kinder social models emerging. We can contribute to that. Last year, oh, I have to say this. I have to remember to say, yeah, I'm ready. I have to remember to say suffering. Suffering lies in the gap between the way things are and the way we want them to be. This is the way things are. We have the ability to look straight at it. The way we want things to be is the way they were. Yeah, it's true. But this is the way things are. So we create the suffering for ourselves by refusing to take a look at this and say yes to it don't we, over and over. <clears throat> I was diagnosed, <clears throat> I was diagnosed with lymphoma last year. It was really interesting. I was, um, it was cutaneous, it was on my skin. So it was my dermatologist who called. We thought perhaps I had a, What's that kind of, oh, we thought it was something, but it, was, <laughs> it turned out it was so much worse. So my dermatologist called and she said the word lymphoma, she had radiation that would fix it. So because I'm a lucky person, I was just leaving to go down to lead my sitting group. I have a sitting group in San Mateo. Wednesday nights. So after hearing lymphoma, radiation, me, <clears throat> I had to go meditate. And in that period of meditation, at the end of that period of meditation, I understood that whatever happens, it'll be fine. That's my Zen. <clears throat> I could live, I could die, it'll be fine. Don't turn away, don't ignore pleasure, be kind, learn to love, be willing to be vulnerable. These are the answers I have <laughs> to the unspoken question, what is it to be human, how do we do it? 
Let's see if I've said all of the things I wanted to say. I'll never say all the things I want to say. I want to mention Warden's fourth task of grief is to find an enduring connection with the deceased in the midst of embarking on a new life. We're not there yet. But we will be. And let's say that the point is when when there's a vaccine and we're able to go out safely and see each other again let's try to think now of how we want to do that how we want our world to be and do everything that we can to create that world that's what i've got this morning do we chant now what we usually do is a little q a if anybody wants to so um, glad to hear your voice. Sorry. <laughs> That's it. I'm so glad to hear another human voice. Oh my sorry. God. Yeah. I'm to keep everybody because okay. it can be a little chaotic otherwise. But um, understood. If, if anyone wants to wave or use the little digital raising of hand. I'm not seeing anyone yet. So I have, I have myself um, one question or comment or just want to get your thoughts on it. Um, you know, the last couple of my years for me, um, this theme that keeps coming up is, boy, getting sort of slapped with realizing how much I take things for granted. And I feel like, you know, I certainly spend a lot of time being introspective and trying to not take things for granted. But another late great um, and my former first uh, formal Zen teacher, Shokem Jordan Thorne. Yeah. Yeah. I was in, I was a green gulch and in Q&A with Reb Anderson, and he was the one who had told me why I was hearing this constant bell off in the distance, and that's how I got the news, which was a good way to get the news, but I remember my first thought was, um, you know, boy, did I take, you know, my time with him for granted in some ways, and then there's been a lot of other events in my life the last few years, and every time I keep thinking, boy, I took a lot of things for granted, so as this COVID thing has happened, <laughs> as I walk past restaurants and stores and things and not see people I think gosh I feel like I took things for granted again and I just wonder especially with your work with you know chaplaincy what you think or <laughs> you have a, any tricks or anything about that tricks for taking things for granted for not taking them for granted <laughs> <laughs> you know something similar that occurred to me at the start of this <laughs> is how much I used to complain about my life. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> I had a fabulous life, but the point is I still do. <laughs> so actually, as I used to complain about that life, uh, what I can learn is not to complain about this life and not to take this moment for granted and this beauty and this <laughs> this way of connecting. Perhaps <clears throat> back to <clears throat> the great value of learning, learning the way our own minds work. You can see that. You can see, your, see the way that you took things for granted. That's the only guard against doing it again in the future. There are no tricks. The only trick is seeing reality as it is. 
we take life for, we take life for granted and then someone calls and says you have lymphoma we take life itself for granted we take friendship for granted friendship is so so fragile and precious and we took the world that we had the world of restaurants and trips to paris as if someone owed it to us I think seeing it helps us to remember. I, I took a look at who's here, and Judith is here. Where'd she go? Hey, Ren. There you are. The little squares keep moving around. Judith is here, and Judith and I are going to take a walk and have some distanced food later today to celebrate my birthday. And I am not taking that for granted. I'm so precious such good luck that a close old friend has ended up living near me and I see Cheryl Cheryl I never take you for granted never 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 <laughs> you know you know once I asked Steve my feelings were hurt when he became Abbott he became he didn't have all the time for me I wanted. And so I asked him in Dokasan, I had the nerve to say, when you don't see me, do you think about me? Which I think is just the great question that all women want to ask men. And Steve said, no, I don't. <laughs> but the next time we had Dokasan, um, and as it turns out, it was the last time, there's something I took for granted was him. Um, I didn't bring it up again, but he did. Uh, and he said, uh, he said, just because I'm not thinking about you doesn't mean I'm not helping you. So for the old friends I see in front of me now, this is true for us. Even though we're not thinking about each other, seeing each other, touching each other, it doesn't mean we're not helping each other. It's good, isn't it? I've just finished a book called Love and Fear. It's uh, hospice stories. It's about being a hospice chaplain. And it was difficult to finish the book. And I'm like, why? Why? I likened it to climbing Mount Everest, where the last 1% is <laughs> by far the hardest part. And I realized that one of the reasons I couldn't finish this book is because I didn't know how I could live without it. What am I going to do now? Maybe I'll write a little book about things that Steve said to me. Other questions, comments, please? Hi. Hi, I'm Janos. Hi, Janos. So thank you for your talk so much. It uh, really resonates uh, sort of with my current experience here with this COVID and uh, this whole idea of uh, that we are in grief and what are we going to do? What do we want? Um, I was thinking of that my husband and I, uh, we watched a very powerful movie. Uh, last weekend and we were so drawn to it um 
even though we've seen it before. And as you're talking about it, I realized sort of the effect it was having it was the, the pianist, uh, Polanski's work about a, a Jewish pianist in Poland um, and all the losses and griefs that he experienced uh, through Nazi-occupied Poland during the war. And uh, afterwards, uh, at the end, uh, he's lost so much. He lost his family. He's just trying to survive. He does survive. A uh, Nazi colonel at the end uh, provides some food for him, which was so uh, touching. And um, then at the last scene, he is playing piano. There in Poland, in uh, uh, communist uh, Soviet-occupied Poland, where a lot of the Jews had already been killed or left to Israel. And so I was thinking, God, why would anyone want to stay there after my, my parents also escaped from um, uh, Soviet-occupied Hungary mm. uh, many years ago? And so it, it just dawned on me as you were talking about that he, through this, in, through this incredible grief process, he refound his passion as a pianist. And not that he forgot that he was a Jew, but that he was just being vulnerable about who he was uh, in this new state and that had gone through and lost so much, but he continued to just play. And it, what a gift it was to uh, all of the people around him that he could express his passion, his love yeah. again, uh, yeah. rather than be angry and say, oh, you know, I'm leaving Poland forever. And it, it just really moved me deeply now. Um, and thank you for that sort of aha moment. Thank, thank you for that. And if we can learn the workings of our own minds, when we reach those pivot points, shall I be mad at them forever? Shall that be my life? Or shall I, shall I turn toward beauty? Shall that be my life? It creates that possibility. Our vow, the vow that we take countless times, we take it big in an ordination ceremony. We're gonna, we're gonna take it at the end of this talk. Our vow is to be helpful. There has been suffering. We're learning about the 1918 so-called Spanish flu. You bring up the Holocaust. There's always been suffering. People have always needed help. Who's going to provide that help? I'll let it be us. Let me be the one who is willing to play the piano. Thank you, Janusz. Thank you. I thought I saw Hokai. Did you still have a question or comment? 
Sure. Th thank you, Renshin, for your talk. There's hey, hi. Hi, baby. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, are, you, are you still down in uh, Santa Cruz? Uh, Saratoga. Saratoga? Yeah, so, and I think you know I've, I've taken leave from my hospice chaplaincy. And, yeah. And I, and I feel the same way in the beginning, too. Like, there was an immense amount of fear. And I'm just, I guess I'm struggling a little bit with that, too, because it, it's, it's, um, I can't be helpful if I have fear. And yet I feel like here my colleagues are, are still, you know, working, some in my company actually going into COVID places. And, yeah, I know. And I don't particularly want to do that. <laughs> so I guess it's kind of a confession. And I just, um, I feel bad as somebody who's a chaplain, because I feel like that's maybe what, as a chaplain, I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to step up to this, but I actually don't want to. I'm really glad that you arrived at supposed to. I mean, screw that. Mm. And you're being helpful as a son, right? Yes. Being helpful, being helpful is with every breath. It's not with a chaplain badge only. Mm -hmm. I tried to, <laughs> I, I sent my manager a letter, I think in the first week or second week. And I said, you know, I'm, I only work four days a week. And I said to him, I, I, I think I'd like to cut back to two days a week. There just isn't enough work to do. But fortunately, it appears he never read that letter because he didn't respond. Because <laughs> then I had a day where I had a, you know, making these phone calls, punching in these numbers, you never know. And there's the fear that I'm being intrusive. There's always the fear in our work. Am I, do they want me? Am, or am I just being tolerated? There's always that fear, not just in our work. And then you make a call, and I'm finding some people who are so lonely and so eager to have someone to talk to. Mm. And they're not talking about religion, and they're not talking even about death. They're just talking. Mm. So two days after I tried to cut back to two days a week, I sent a second email that he also didn't answer, <laughs> saying, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, so the work is, the work is. Uh, I describe it as uh, uh, walking a tightrope with one hand tied behind my back, <clears throat> and I'll be glad when it's over. I'll be glad when I can see people in person again. But I better not complain. I have a paycheck coming in. I was, you know, I heard about this idea that those of us who don't need the money that the government is sending out should um, should uh, could donate that somewhere. So I got my check the other day, and it was really fun to have money to spend. And the first one, <laughs> the first charity I thought of <clears throat> was Amy McGrath, who's running against Mitch McConnell. So I sent her my stimulus. She was one of the people who got my stimulus money. <laughs> so fight, fight, fight. But, but the real answer is that going to the grocery store, there are opportunities to help. Mm -hmm. The lady in the laundry room who said she was bored, there's an opportunity to help. It's not just 
sitting at the bedside of someone who's dying. As you know, it's really nice to see you. You know, when I first started at Tassajara in 2000, uh, um, I'm sorry, I only remember you as Max. Mm. He was on the kitchen crew that practice period. And I was walking down the path. I don't know why I wasn't in the Zendo. And Max was going down. He was running down the path. And I yelled into the silence, no running at Tassajara. And Max kept running and he looked over his shoulder. <laughs> and he shouted, we're all going to die. <laughs> So that was a good start to our relationship. We're all going to die. There's a famous story of Katagiri Roshi, who's called to a big fundraiser. They want to start a Zen center in Minneapolis. And Katagiri comes out, and there are all these rich people holding cocktails. And he stands silently and looks at them. And then and he starts his, his pitch for money by saying, you're all going to die. But it's true. Mm -hmm. yeah. thank you <laughs> thank you it's great to see you